0: Hello. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the rest of Act 1, Scene 2, with the letters, the deception, and Gloucester's astrological predictions. So we've just come from Edmund's soliloquy, where he tells the audience and, and almost divulges to the audience that he has uh, kind of plans to somehow take Edmund's fortune. Um, so we know that he's kind of up to no good. Uh, then we have Gloucester coming in, and he's, he's disturbed by what he's just seen um, in the scene with the love test with Leah and his daughters, um, and uh, is just very surprised by the turn of events there. Um, then he notices Edmund putting away his letter and he asks to see it. Um, so remember, Edmund had a letter at the start of the scene where he's talking in the soliloquy. Um, Edmund then kind of makes a big show of not wanting to give it to him. Um, but we know that the letter is forged. Edgar's not written it. Edmund's written it. Um, and uh, Gloucester's really alarmed by what he reads because essentially in this letter, Edgar, Edmund, um, Edgar is saying that he would, he wants to dispatch of his father. He wants to, um, he kind of hopes that he will die, so that the brothers can split the fortune. Um, and this is something that Gloucester is very concerned about because, you know, not least because of what he's just seen happen with Lear and and his daughters and then kind of the the fallout there and the breaking apart of the family. Now there's some really important um, kind of moments in this lead up, um, and. Uh, there's there's kind of themes that are referred to here. We have a repetition of the idea of nothing. Um, Edmund says, nothing, my lord. Uh, so he says, I know no news, my lord. What paper were you reading? Nothing, my lord, referring to the letter. Um, but whereas Cordelia, in saying nothing, was being very open with her father and openly kind of rejecting this idea of falsehood and trickery through saying nothing... Edmund is doing the exact opposite. He wants to trick, because everything stems from that letter. So even though the same words are used, the intentions behind them are opposite. We then have, um, and again, I'm just kind of cherry-picking some bits out here. There's lots, again, you could, you could pick apart. Um, Gloucester then says, No, what needed, then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket. The quality of nothing hath not uh, such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. The theme of sight. So the scene of sight is hugely important across both narratives. Um, With Gloucester, it's a little bit more on the nose in the sense that he literally loses his eyes and in doing so gains sight um, of situations and relationships and so on. Um, Edmund then refuses to give him the letter, but then Gloucester comes back with an imperative, again mirroring Leah. So uh, a really good exercise to do is to go through this scene and to see what parallels... um, thematically but also linguistically you can draw between this and the main plot um because that's kind of the point really of the subplot and there's lots of theorists who say that the subplot um, and critics who say the subplot is uh superfluous um and only is only serves to confuse things um, but lots of people uh, you know, conversely think that the subplot is essentially important because in reiterating these themes and reiterating these ideas in different contexts, we are reinforcing them to the audience. And it's ultimately your choice as to which opinion you kind of fall behind. Um, then we have the latter. Uh, and then Gloucester reacts in a very similar way to Leah, Um after Cordelia refuses to take part in the love test and uh so we see kind of the 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 disruption of a family again in the subplot um to mirror the plot now um in act 1 scene 2 uh Shakespeare closely follows what he read in Hortensio Lando's paradossi um where he says the bastard is more worthy to be esteemed than he that is lawfully born or legitimate um, and he uses he uses Lando, um, but it's also worth noting. And again, this is con- this is contextual information. He uses this idea from Lando that the bastard is more worthy than the legitimate, and uh, Edmund's motivations very kind of drawn driven by this. But Lando was a humorist um, and usually wrote these parodies um, and paradoxes. So it's not it's not kind of um you know hence, hence to a paradossi right in Italian. So it's not um kind of meant to be taken seriously. But again Shakespeare's woven it into the narrative. Um and I mentioned last time the idea of uh the prince by Niccolo Machiavelli um and the idea of Machiavellian so the worst acts of the ruler are justified by the wickedness and treachery of the government. Um, or the governed sorry not the government and if you think about Edmund and how narcissistic he is you can kind of see that in his head the worst acts that he can commit um, are justified because of maybe how he's been treated um, even though by and large he seems to have been loved and treated respectfully but you know, we have seen him be made fun of and called names and things. So maybe he feels that and also the, the society at large doesn't treat him with the same respect as they would if he was legitimate. So maybe he feels that um, the wickedness of society for disowning him or, or, um, or kind of making him feel um, less worthy means that his actions are therefore justified. Now, um, Edmund here um, very much kind of lets his plan play out. So, first of all, he talks to Gloucester uh, and then talks to Edgar afterwards. And we'll talk about that in a second. He addresses nature. Um, Then we saw that in the uh, soliloquy that we looked at. Um, So, in Shakespeare's Doctrine of Nature... John Danby argues that all the virtuous characters in this play look at nature as kindly, whereas evil characters regard nature as justification for their unscrupulous impulses. Um, And this is quite common, actually, in lots of Shakespeare's plays. So uh, it's generally evil characters who tend to curse the stars. Um, In Julius Caesar, it's the envious Cassius, um, and he uh, says that the fault is not... um, in our stars, but in ourselves. However, it is possible to agree with the analysis by analysing the outcomes the dramatist constructs for the characters. So whatever the character's interpretation of it, nature exists. Nature doesn't choose to save those who believe it. It doesn't punish those. Um, Nature is just there. And it's important to think about the idea of the relationship between nature and the characters and whether there is some sort of divide between... Um those who obey nature and who um, and who kind of try to defy nature. and if you think about the plays that you've studied before, people who try to defy nature tend to get their just rewards um, in in even the simplest terms, if you think about Macbeth, um, if you think about Romeo and Juliet, um, you know it, they're people who try to defy fate, end up losing out big time edmund declares in the last line of this scene all with me is meat that i can fashion fit which basically means the end justifies the means which is a machiavellian kind of idea um and he's determined to rise in the world and even even kind of love that comes along later on um, and his love affairs, they're all second to his ambition. His ambition is the most important thing here. So Edmund's manipulation of Gloucester and Edgar um, obviously is the start of a tragic arc, but it can be seen as quite comic on stage. So depending on what the director wants to do, um, you could look at that, you know, from a very comic point of view. Um, The subplot is fictional and it's entirely Shakespeare's own um, and is undoubtedly more contemporary than the main plot. So the idea of nothing will come of nothing is echoed in If it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles." So the parallels between the two. Uh, and the the theme of sight. And the dominant nature of Edmund's character is driven home by the use of drum-like alliterative repetition, so those plosive sounds, the death the dearth, dissolutions, divisions, diffidences, dissipation. And the view imputed to Edgar that sons should manage the revenue of aged fathers echoes what happens in the main plot. So again, lots and lots and lots of parallels, and it really is worth looking at this and drawing the parallels between them. Now, um... We mentioned this briefly in lessons, but uh, there's um, a writer called Michael de Montaigne, and he wrote in essays that were published um, a few years before uh, King Lear was produced, so about around 1580. It is mere injustice to see an old crazed, sinew shrunken and nigh-dead father to enjoy so many goods as would suffice for the preferment and entertainment of many children, and... In the meanwhile, for want of means, to suffer that to lose their best days and years, a father overburdened with years, or willingly to distribute amongst those to whom by natural decree they belong. In other words, why should the older generation cling on to everything when they can't enjoy it? Let's pass it on earlier. So not everyone in Shakespeare's audience would have thought that to give more power and authority to young people went against nature. Um, for some, they would have felt that that was very much justified. Now, although the pred- the prediction quoted by Gloucester is common, um, and we'll talk about this prediction now, um, this prediction uh, comes up um, as a result of him reading uh, the letter and then uh, conversing. Um, he gets very angry. He says, a natural, detested, brutish villain, worse than brutish. And there's Brutish uh, implies some animalistic imagery and, and the imagery of animals, again, is repeated. The, the motif of animals rep, um, appears regularly throughout the play. So um, the uh, and you can kind of see the again, the connection, the parallel between Leo and Cordelia um, and the way that he calls her monstrous. Uh, there's definitely a connection there. And even you know, Gloss actually uses he cannot be such a monster. Um, again, kind of the, the repetition of those words. So uh, then Gosta has this um, almost prophecy uh, and he talks about these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. though The wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide in cities, mutinies, in countries, discord, in palaces, treason and the bond cracked twists. "'twixt son and father. "'This villain of mine comes under the prediction "'there's son against father. "'The king falls from bias of the best of our time. "'Machinations, hollowness, treachery, "'and all ruinous disorders "'follow us disquietly to our graves. "'Find out this villain, Edmund. "'It shall lose thee nothing. "'Do it carefully. "'And the noble and true-hearted Kent banished "'his offence, honesty. "'Tis strange.'" So he's still trying to wrap his head around what happened in Act 1, scene one. And... Um here we see reference to Elizabethan views on astrology. Um very much this idea that your fate is woven into the stars and there's lots of problems because uh, in court and beyond because the stars are in the wrong position. Um but then there's this kind of prophetic statement. Uh, where it says, we have seen the best of our time, machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruined disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. Um, and we also have the idea of the bond cracked twixt son and father. Um, this is very similar to the prophecy of the end of the world in the Bible, um, specifically Mark 13, where the brother shall deliver the brother to death and the father the son and the children shall rise against their parents and shall cause them to die. The sun shall wax dark and the moon shall not give her light. So we're seeing again this kind of dual context here. So, you know, astrology is being used for him to, to talk about this prophetic statement and this sense of foreboding um, and foreshadowing that creates tension. And there's there's a bit of reference here to James I, for example, the best of our times. Um, and... It, what what this kind of does is it speaks to Shakespeare's audience in a much more profound way because of the biblical reference. So that idea of the end of the world and um, you know we we've seen the best of our times and now everything's um, everything is kind of moving to chaos. It that's a message to. James I and the audience to kind of say, as a result of what I've just seen and the splitting, the division of this country, um, everything is falling into chaos. So, again, another kind of message saying that unity is the answer um, in, in terms of politics and in terms of um, kind of James I moving forward in his reign, um, the idea that unity is the way forward. So he, he talks about he talks about this prophetic statement he can't quite believe it, where right? he says, "And the noble and true-hearted Kent banished his offense Hon- honesty." It is strange um, And he can't quite believe that that's happened because again, he saw the same thing that Kent was just being honest, but that doesn't seem to make any difference. Um, the king falls from bias of nature and this is the idea of the the decisions that were needed um and the the kind of level headedness that was needed there to have a good life um regardless of what position you're in in terms of social hierarchy you know you you need to make the right decisions in order to have a good life and and, and the, the king didn't do that, and it's again thinking back to that idea that nature doesn't discriminate, nature doesn't pick people um you know, doesn't just pick the poor people, anyone can be affected. Uh, there's some listing. Um, there's lots of different kind of linguistic devices here. Uh, and there's, there's sort of quite a long list of, of destruction. And we talked about the alliterative repetition of D sounds here, so the the, the of ideas, um, again, to kind of create that drumming sense, like the drum of doom almost. Um, there's more... Uh, There's more references then, um, as Edmund continues, where he says, this is the excellent foppery of the world. Remember, foppery means fool, so he's uh, mocking his father. Um, And the idea of his father blaming his faults on the stars seems like such a, a childish and silly thing to do for someone like Edmund. Even though Edmund still believes in nature and kind of worships nature as his goddess, he worships nature as his goddess but very much believes in himself deciding his own fate. Um, and therefore, he can defy what, what else happens. So then, uh, Edmund continues to talk and uh, says things like, an admirable evasion of a whoremaster man. So it's interesting, again, connections to Akron Scene 1 that Edmund was called the whore son, and now he is describing his father as the whoremaster man. Uh, almost kind of passing the insult back to his father, because at the end of the day, Edmund didn't make himself legitimate. His father is the one that made him legitimate. So his father deserves the title, in his opinion, almost more than he does. Um, There's more animalistic imagery, um, the idea of uh, my father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, um, which is actually a particular positioning of the sun and moon. Um... And there's... But if you think about the dragon's tail... And Leah saying, come not between the dragon and his wrath... So the point of chaos... The point where Leah's anger... Gets to kind of almost... Imaginary proportions... Um... And almost kind of... Like beyond logic and reason... Because he's thinking in these mythical creatures... Thinking like, like these... Um... On a scale of these mythical creatures... So it's gone beyond all sense of reason... Um... And therefore, there's no coming back. The animalistic imagery here is, you know, Edmund was conceived in this moment. And from the moment Edmund was conceived, Gloucester's fate was potentially decided. Um, And my nativity was under Ursa Major. So Ursa Major is um, uh, a constellation, uh, probably one of the most prominent constellations in the Western Hemisphere. Um, So that it follows, I am rough and lecherous. Um, So Ursa Major is... Uh, is also called the Great Bear, and um, again we've got that animalistic imagery there. So then, um, then we have Edgar come in, and there's, uh, there's, so Edgar, Edgar enters, but Edmund continues to speak, um, and Edmund starts to um, use alliteration of the letter C, um, which. If you imagine, it's almost like uh, the the repeated C sound. And Patty comes like the cat, like the catastrophe of the old comedy. My cue is villainous melancholy with a sign, like oh, like Tom a Bedlam. Oh, these eclipses do portend these divisions. Lots of C's even within words as well, and it creates that clip clop of, uh, and you can imagine it's almost like a puppet master. So he's creating that um, that kind of sense of control um he's creating a kind of rhythm that edgar has to fall into um you can even imagine it as like he's pulling the strings uh but that that repeated sound is there and then they have a discussion um edmund lists the all the divisions um but in a more succinct fashion than Gloucester. And the repetition of the D sound is here as well. Again, kind of um, referring to uh, the, the kind of plosive sound referring to like almost like a death drum beat. Um, the, just incidentally, um, he mentions, um, he says uh, when Edgar enters, um, my cube is villainous melancholy with a sigh like Tom Bedlam. Tom Bedlam is a generic name. Um, it's not anyone specific, it's a generic name for any mad beggar. And it's taken from Bethlehem, or the Hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem, which was used as um, an asylum from the, from the early 15th century. Uh, it is quite ironic that Edmund should refer to Tom Bedlam on Edgar's arrival because that is the role that Edgar adopts later. Um, so it is it's kind of irony, there's a bit of foreshadowing there as well. Then the conversation twists and, um, Edmund doesn't want Edgar to see Gloucester, so Edmund needs to manipulate this situation, so Edgar goes, uh, and it's all about him kind of manipulating that situation, which he does quite skillfully. um, and, uh, there's then a conversation, um, where Edmund basically says, look, dad's really cross with you, um, because someone said that you had bad feelings towards him. And Edgar responds with, some villain hath done me wrong, which is such a level of dramatic irony, because we know that Edmund is the villain that did him wrong. But Edgar doesn't know that. So it really builds that tension, uh, because, you know, the person who he should be chastising for making all of this happen is, um, is on stage with him. So Edmund told Edgar to take... Then there's more irony. Edmund says, brother, I advise you to the best. I am no honest man. Well, we know this. He's actually quite a bad person. Um, And it's quite clever the way that that's been woven in. And that might even get a laugh from the audience depending on how, again, it's performed. And that's why performance is really important to kind of look at um, when you look at the way that these characters are presented. And then we end Act 1, Scene 2, with Edmund's little soliloquy. Um... I do serve you in this business, a credulous father and a brother noble, whose nature is so far from doing harms that he suspects none, on whose foolish honesty my practices ride easy. I see the business. Let me, if not by birth, have lands by wit, all with me's meat that I can fashion fit. So we've already talked about that last line at the end, justifying the means. Um, but before that, he just basically talks about his dad being gullible um, and that no one suspects him. And the fact he's doing that back to the audience and kind of confiding in the audience again builds that relationship. Um, and it's really interesting, the fact that this this evil character is is building this rapport with the audience in a way that the others haven't really yet. Um, So in terms of parallels, there's there's a lot here. Um, Gloucester is putting himself in his son Edmund's power just as Lear resigned his authority to Goneril and Regan. And that ultimately leads to their downfall, that they put their faith in the wrong person. Um, Edmund's triumphant opportunism, energy and directness when he is alone on stage, it really mirrors Goneril's and Regan's urgent plain speaking at the end of Act 1, Scene 1. So the kind of... the evil children are... Are kind of building their plans and gaining ground, um, and there's there's there are kind of lots of um, examples here of uh, contextual links and parallels, as I said, um, and uh, we mentioned Montaigne before, um, so Montaigne. Um, again in his essays, reveals disgust at the violence between Catholics and Protestants and questions the place of man in the cosmos, claiming we do not have good reason to consider ourselves superior to animals and therefore arguing against things like the great chain of being, which we talked about um, at the start of this. So in King Lear, Shakespeare kind of makes use of this philosophy, um, which could be described as kind of humanistic or um, a mixture of humanism and wise scepticism. And it's important because that chain of being is exploited and 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 explored um, through these characters' actions and, and the way that these characters act to kind of in in taking fate into their own hands in some way. Um, in terms of Edmund, we talked about him uh, in relation to the Machiavellian, but also there's um there's reference to the malcontent. Now, the malcontent was a scornful, mocking outsider. And in John Marston's play, The Malcontent, um, this character was basically established and it was established as a theatrical type. So you can see that Edmund, in addition to being the Machiavellian, could be considered a malcontent here as well. So there's, there's lots, again, lots going on in this first scene because it sets up and on this first proper scene of the subplot because it sets up so much about the relationship between the characters the character dynamics um and kind of setting up the the downfall of characters later on again we see another innocent and virtuous child cast off um and we we see the wrong decisions being made and this is where this is where you have to decide really as an audience member Watching the same fate play out twice, does that really hit home for you the the impact of these actions? Does Act one scene two feel more frustrating you're more frustrated at Gloucester than at Leah um because you've already seen this happen and you've seen that it didn't end well, so you kind of want you want Gloucester to not make the mistakes that leah's made um and that ultimately is is your decision so at the end of act 1 scene 2 um edmund has rejected his father's superstitious beliefs um edmund has you know shown that he has a rapport with his brother because they joke about their uh, his father's or their father's fondness for um astronomy um and then uh kind of joke about each other as well so um edmund's supposed fondness for astronomy too edmund has told Edgar that he's offended their father and advises him to keep out of Gloucester's way. And Edgar is alarmed. So Edmund suggests that Edgar goes into hiding at his lodgings and his brother follows. So the end of this, Edmund um, has told Edgar to go into hiding and Edgar has gone to do that. What happens next? We will find out. Um, But we're going back to the main plot, uh, the main storyline in Act 1, Scene 3, which we will talk about in the next session. See you then.